Prayer reveals much about our spiritual state. So much. If you want a barometer of your spiritual health, consider your prayer life. Consider how you pray. Consider when you pray. And consider why you pray. Now, inevitably, as soon as we start talking about prayer, we realize immediately we're coming into a very practical matter of our Christian faith and our daily lives. Frankly, I would assume this morning that we all gather with prayer problems. We don't pray enough. I think most of us would confess that. We pray for the wrong reasons. And maybe we pray to the wrong ends. But praise Jesus, he has gifted us a clear, direct, and practical set of instruction on prayer. He hasn't left us to wonder, how should I pray? He hasn't left us to to try to figure it out on our own, and certainly not to just follow the habits of culture or other religions. No, he's told us this is what we should be thinking about prayer and how we should go about praying. And so that, that teaching is a blessing. And this morning we come to Matthew 6, which includes, or the chunk of Matthew 6, that includes what is famously known as the Lord's Prayer. Some commentators think it's better, it should be better titled the Disciples Prayer, because here Jesus is just teaching his disciples how to pray. They would say the Lord's Prayer is in John 17, when Jesus uh, prays on our behalf to the Father there in John 17. Um, I'll leave it to you. I won't be offended if you still call it the Lord's Prayer, okay? So we'll be okay. Um, are, are you going to be okay? I'm not totally sure. Has it been one of those weeks <laughs> for many of us? Grammy's in town. It's been one of those weeks for us. I know that. So uh, here we are. We need this gathering. Okay. Again, this chunk of scripture is a blessing to us from Jesus as he gives us this clear instruction on prayer. And my friend John Calvin talked about it this way, about this particular section of scripture. He says, from this kindness of his, we receive a great fruit of help that we know we are requesting nothing absurd, nothing strange or unseemly. In short, nothing unacceptable to him since we are asking almost in his own words. Calvin's point is that when we follow the Lord's prayer as a model for us, we basically are guaranteed that we're praying in the right way for the right things. And although we don't repeat these words verbatim every time we pray, they should influence how we pray every time we pray. The disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer is a template for us. And before we get to the template itself, and again, I know that's really familiar territory, but we're going to learn a lot about it today. But before we get to the template itself, Jesus deals with two areas of hypocrisy related to prayer. And remember, that's the general context of Matthew 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has turned a corner in Matthew 6 to deal with hypocrisy, and specifically hypocrisy that's motivated by pleasing others. So pretending to be religious, pretending to be people of faith, rather than actually being a people of faith. Last week, we talked about giving, right? Almsgiving or giving to the poor, giving to the church. And this week, he comes to another matter of uh, hypocrisy. Sadly, uh, that's often the case the area of prayer. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6. We'll start in verse number 5. Okay, we're up to verse 5. And just note there what Matthew writes. He says, again, quoting Jesus here, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Just pause there with verse 5. Okay, so Jesus here 
basically mirroring exactly how he talked about giving in the previous section. He tells us to be careful about praying. He says, whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. The hypocrites who wear a mask, who pretend to be one thing when they're actually another. Well, how, do they, how are they hypocrites? Well, they're hypocrites when they pray because they pray, they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Now, let me talk about how this would have worked out practically. Of course, synagogue gatherings would have happened um, on the weekly basis, uh, right? So that's, that's one area where they just love to be praying in public. But the street corners is another question. And in, uh, in Jewish practice in the first century, there would often have been prayers that were offered at the same time that the morning and evening sacrifices were being offered at the temple. And for some people with a bonus prayer around lunchtime. So kind of three, two or three key times of prayer. So what apparently was going on was certain religious leaders in the community, Pharisees, scribes, you know, well-known uh, people who wanted to be seen as religious, they would strategically plan their day so that at those given times, they just happen to be at the busy intersections, right? They would, one commentator said, contrive to be at the right place at the right time. Or we might say the right place at the wrong time, right? And then, oh, well, it's time for prayer. It just so happens I have an audience. Oh, well, right? And then they would pray. Most often those prayers, actually always, those prayers would have been audible. They wouldn't be praying in silent. They would be praying out loud. And so, hey, if they're on the street, so be it, right? They were manipulating their schedule to make sure that they were in a place that they would be publicly seen as praying. And I'm just telling you, those prayers were long, and they had a lot of these and thous in them, all right? They're, they're, the point was to make people think that they were very religious and very spiritual. Jesus says at the end of verse 5, just as he did last week with giving, truly, I tell you, they have their reward. If they want the approval of people, that's what they have. But that's all their reward. Again, Jesus is exposing here false spirituality. As much as he teaches us about true discipleship, he's warning us against false discipleship. So he says, be careful how you pray. He gives in positive instruction in verse 6. Watch verse 6. He says, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, kingdom citizens don't pray for show. Kingdom citizens don't pray for show. When it's time to pray, you go in your, you go in your house, you go in your office, your closet. The word here, inner room, was probably a storehouse room. It would have been a small room that certainly would have had a door on it. And the emphasis here is on privacy. You go into a place where it's not for show. You don't go out on the porch. You don't go in the bay window so all the neighbors can see. Right? You go into your private room. You shut the door and you pray. Well, why do you go into the, to the, the private room? Again, so that your prayer, your motivation for prayer is actually genuine. And he says, you pray to your father who is in secret there. There's a, an, a reference here to the invisibility and yet omnipresence of God. Although we cannot see God, he is everywhere all the time. And a prayer that's offered secretly in the closet is just as effective as a prayer that's out in the open. And so Jesus says, protect your heart motivations. When it's time to pray, you go into the closet. Don't strategically scheme to be in the right place at the right time. And by the way, your father who sees in secret, who knows all, he will reward you. Again, Jesus, as he did last week, he says, look towards your heavenly reward here. Bottom line, kingdom citizens, don't pray for show. Now, 
in our culture, because we don't have set times of prayer, I highly doubt that you are taking time in your office to stand up on a table and say, hey, everybody, I'm going to pray. Watch me. If you're doing that, see me after church. Okay, we need to talk uh, on multiple levels, right? We're not, we're not so much doing that, but how, white, how might we struggle to pray for show today? Well, I think the primary struggle for us today may be that the only time we pray is when we feel obligated to because we're around other people. Meaning, maybe it's mealtimes with a Christian family. Maybe it's only the gatherings of the church. Just at, at Bible study. Just at care group. Just when we're gathered with the saints. For the whole rest of our lives, we don't pray. So in that sense, all of our praying may be motivated by just trying to please other people. We're just praying because other people expect us to pray. And we want to look Christian to them. And so we feel like we should pray for the meal or we should pray at care group or pray at Bible study or whatever. But kingdom citizens don't pray for show. Notice there's a connection here between when we pray and why we pray. Jesus says these guys were scheming to pray in, the, in these places at particular times, but they weren't praying for the right reasons. They were just praying to be seen by others. And there's the root of the issue. If the only time you pray is when you're around others, you need to ask, am I in a relationship with the sovereign, omnipresent, omnipotent God of this universe? And is that relationship motivating me to to go to him in prayer? Because if the only time you pray is when other people are looking, you're worshiping them, not God. That's the root of the issue. So praying hypocritically here looks like praying for show. But that wasn't the only issue regarding prayer that Jesus wants to address. And so now he launches into kind of a secondary area of hypocrisy with prayer that's related not so much to Jews in the first century, but Gentiles. Watch verse 7. He continues on. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Jesus now addresses the issue of of Gentile prayer, which was known for being long-winded using many words. Now, to understand this, we have to understand the kind of the Greco-Roman religious context, right? So in Greco-Roman religion, you have a plurality of gods, so many gods and goddesses. And there's gods and goddesses for this, that, and the other, right? All these special areas of expertise or influence. And if you've ever read any of, uh, of the Greco-Roman myths uh, about uh, their gods and goddesses, they're just not great people, the gods and goddesses, right? They're, they're too much like basically a soap opera. So, <clears throat> so much drama. And if you, wanna, if you need help in a particular area and you want said god or goddess to help you, you don't, you don't ask. You can't just ask. You have to beg and manipulate. And you have to use all the, the religious leverage that you can. You have to offer the right sacrifices. You have to go to the right location. You have to perform the right uh, you know, uh, uh, pilgrimage. And especially you have to pray using the right words. There were two examples of this. One is of uh, pagan priests in the first century having to read long prayers word for word without mistake. And if they prayed the prayer without making a mistake in the pronunciation, then that meant that there was a greater chance that said God or goddess would grant the prayer. 
Or there's another uh, specific example we have where you have to pray using the secret special name of the god or goddess. And so if you have access to this long drawn out name to the god or goddess that that, uh, not everybody knows and you use that secret name accurately, well then that unlocks that god or goddess to you and then they'll finally do what you want. Notice again in all these examples, you have to use your prayer as as a tool to leverage the god or goddess, to manipulate them, to get them to do what you want. Again, it's all about you in that in that moment of prayer, at least for the pagans. So in the first century Israel, you had pagans around, you had Romans around, so they would, they would have heard Romans praying in these ways, particularly in the long-winded babbling, blah, 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 all the words, right, over and over again, trying to convince these gods and goddesses to do what they need. But Jesus says, you don't need many words. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Be blessed. You don't have to pray long prayers, Okay. It's nothing inherently wrong with a long prayer, but Jesus says, if you think that your prayer is more effective because it's longer, you are wrong. That's not how it works. So don't babble like the Gentiles because they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Again, the many words are what caused the God or goddess to do what they want. He says, don't be like them, verse 8. Why? Because you know who you're praying to. And you're praying not to Zeus or Apollo. You're praying to your heavenly father. Notice how he talks about God here in verse 8. Because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Christian prayer doesn't seek to leverage right, our words against God to manipulate him to do what we want. Christian prayer is based on the assumption that God is our father, that he cares about us, and he already knows everything we need. Isn't that so interesting? You know, sometimes people push back against the idea of prayer, like, why am I praying if God's omniscient? He already knows it all. Jesus says, that's exactly why you pray. Because you know that God knows it all, and he cares about you. In this case, prayer, again, isn't an attempt to manipulate God. It's an expression of worshipful dependence on God. It's an expression of worshipful dependence on God who cares for us, who loves us, who is indeed our Heavenly Father. Kingdom citizens don't pray for show, and kingdom citizens don't pray to manipulate God. We don't pray to manipulate God. We need to understand here that prayer doesn't necessarily, it it doesn't, not necessarily, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. And yes, our prayer is effective, meaning that God may have ordained in eternity past for your prayer to come along at a particular time when he is inclined to do something. But don't think for a minute that your your prayer is somehow, uh, again, convincing God to do something that he wasn't willing to do otherwise. But when we pray to our Heavenly Father who knows our needs, prayer is actually intended to change us, to affect us. We're not manipulating. We're the ones that are being changed by it. God is our Father, and He cares for us. In this regard, I think we have to think about specifically here what we pray for. If we're praying just to get what we want, right? If we're praying just to get what we want, that's pagan, that's Gentile. That's, that's Roman. It's also very selfish, isn't it? I mean, just to view God as kind of your heavenly Costco, where you can just go to get all, you know, Costco. You've been familiar with Costco? You know, where you go to get everything you need? You know about Costco, right? If they don't sell it at Costco, you don't need it. Right? <laughs> 
Sometimes that's how we treat God. Like he's our heavenly Costco. He's like, well, yeah, God, I want this. I want that. 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 Me, me, me. I, 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 this is what I want. It's all about me. And you think, oh, if I have to use a lot of words, if I have to pray in the King James to get him to listen, then I'll do that. I'll trick him into helping me. I'll force him to help me. Jesus says, you've, you've totally misunderstood who God is. Don't confuse the God of the universe, universe with Zeus, who's petty and, who, and who, who will, you know, who's bitter. Don't confuse the God of the universe with Zeus. God is your father and he cares about you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling. You're having a rough time with this, that, or the other. Can I just encourage you from the word of God this morning that God is your father and he cares about your struggle? And you don't have to pray to inform him about what's going on in your life. But you can pray in light of the fact that he is a loving father who cares for you. Of course, that doesn't mean that he'll always give us everything we pray for. But it does change our tone and our posture as we pray. Don't babble when you pray. Pray in light of the fact that God is good and he cares for you and for me. Well, so then how do we pray? And here Jesus turns the corner again to this famous section of scripture, the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. I like hitting it in the run of play, though, here because it helps us understand it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is telling us how to be his disciples. Therefore, verse 9, he says, you should pray like this. How should we pray? Okay, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's circle back there to verse 9. Okay, therefore you should pray like this. The Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer comes to us in two sections with one little introduction. Okay, so there's two parts to it. The introduction is our Father in heaven. So again, kind of building on just what he said previously... We're not praying to Zeus or Apollo or whoever else. We're praying to God who is our father, who cares for us. But crucially, he is enthroned in heaven. When Jesus refers to the father as being in heaven, he's emphasizing his role as the sovereign over the universe. Okay, he's the king, and that's where his throne is, right? So he says, when you pray, address God as our father in heaven. Doesn't mean we can't use other names for God when we pray, but he's saying there's a recognition here of God's care for us and his position of authority in the universe, okay? Our Father in heaven. And then in the first section, we have three requests, okay? Three imperatives that all are related to God's kingdom and God's glory, right? Note the first there in verse 9. Your name be honored as holy. The second, your kingdom come. The third, your will be done. And then there's that last line, as it is in heaven. There's a good chance that the line, as it is in heaven, uh, excuse me, as it is uh, on, excuse me, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a good chance that on earth as it is in heaven is meant to modify all three of those requests. Your name be revered as holy on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice all three of those requests, right? They center around God's character and his kingdom work. The first request, your name be honored as holy. It means just that. Let your name be revered as holy. May we, your people, treat you as separate and distinct 
as the highest above all else. May we treasure you above all else. May your word and your kingdom matter to us above all else. May, may we not treat you casually the way we would a friend, right? You'll notice that the, that the Lord's Prayer here doesn't start, uh, hey, bruh. That was for some of our younger folks. So for those of us who may not be young, bruh is an abbreviation for bro, which is an abbreviation for brother, okay? So we've reached an absolute place of absurdity on that, right? <laughs> bruh doesn't revere the name of God, right? I mean, that, but that's it. That really is it. May your name be revered as holy. We don't treat you as a bro. We don't treat you as a casual acquaintance, Lord, we're asking that your name would be revered as holy on earth in general, but of course, specifically in us. And that is a God-centered way of praying. God, may you be valued above all else on this earth. What a place this would be if that was the case. The second request in the first part, he says, your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. On earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we're asking that you would build your kingdom here. That you would establish your kingdom here on earth. There's there's an eschatological component here where we look forward to the return of Jesus and the establishment of God's kingdom on earth forever. But until that time, we recognize that God is building his kingdom through the advancement of the church. But again, it's a kingdom-mindedness here, right? It says, when you pray... Pray that God's name would be revered as holy and pray for his kingdom to come. Pray for God's kingdom work to advance. That we would see that happening in our church and in our community and then across the world, absolutely. Again, notice the, 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 the absolute kingdom-centered way of praying here. Okay, so your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come and then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's closely related to your kingdom coming. But may your, your moral will be done on earth. When we talk about the moral will of God, we talk about doing what God wants us to do and has called us to do. Choosing right from wrong, saying no to temptation. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, everybody says, yes, sir, when God gives an order, right? May that be the case here, Lord. May that be the case on earth. May it be the case in our state, in our town. But Lord, especially may it be the case in our church. May your will be done. Not just generically, but in my life. So the first section of the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer here, right? it's clearly kingdom-centered and kingdom-minded. It centers on God's character and his work. And so as we think about this prayer, I think we have to recognize that kingdom citizens pray kingdom-minded prayers. Kingdom citizens pray kingdom-minded prayers. You'll notice that we've, we're three requests deep here, plus an introduction, and there hasn't been any, any of this, uh, you know, me, me, my, my, my stuff, right? It's your name, it's your kingdom, and it's your will. There's a reason Jesus teaches us to pray in this way. There's a reason for the order in which Jesus teaches us to pray. Notice the second section, which then comes to our needs And again, our Father cares for us, and our needs are real. And so our needs are included in this model for prayer. We're so familiar with it, but verse 11, give us today our daily bread. The example of daily bread is one specific need that stands for any kind of physical need that we might have. 
right? So we're just recognizing in the prayer that we are dependent every day for provision from God's good hand. We're recognizing that God is the provider. So the paycheck is going to hit the account because of God's grace, right? The economy is going to be sustained and the business is going to function because of God's grace. They're going to have food at the grocery store because of God's grace. See, in a modern culture, we have to like walk it back like, you know, three levels deep. But it's going to rain because of God's grace, which is going to cause crops to grow, which is going to enable them to fill the grocery stores, which is going to enable us to be able to go and buy food. All of that, all of that is all because of God's grace. And when we have physical needs, Jesus says there is a time and a place when you're praying to the Lord to ask God to provide for your needs. Give us this day. Give us today our daily bread. We're saying, God, we depend on you, right? So we're bringing our needs to him in prayer. But our physical needs aren't our only needs. Our bodily needs, our financial needs, those are not our only needs. Because watch verse 12. As this section of bringing needs to the Lord in prayer continues, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, the word debts here, Jesus is using debts as a metaphor for sin. And we know that because in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, it actually says transgressions. But in this case, it's obvious he's talking about not physical debts because they're debts to the Lord. So it's spiritual debt, debt that's a result of sin. And so the prayer request is forgive us our debts. Lord, forgive us for our sins. There's an acknowledgement here that disciples will have sins to confess to the Lord in prayer. And it's appropriate in prayer to confess your sin to the Lord. But there's also a related request. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. As we have forgiven those who have wronged us. There's a reciprocal relationship between God and his gracious character and our living out of of the Christian life that we've been forgiven, so we're forgiven. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Jesus will come back to that issue. But just note here that it's appropriate when we're praying to confess our sins and then to ask God to help us be gracious with other people. Very practical stuff here in the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer. That's not the only aspect of our spiritual need, though. It's not just that we need forgiveness. We also need help as we grow. Watch verse 13. And again, two-part request here. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus says when you're praying, then you, you need to ask God to continue his work of sanctifying you. So when he says, do not bring us into temptation, he's basically saying, please help us say no to temptation. He's not saying, don't ever put me in a situation where I'll be tempted, because obviously that's not God's will. Uh, Jesus himself was led into the spirit by the, uh, led into the wilderness by the spirit just a few chapters prior in Matthew, right? So we know that sometimes God will lead us through situations that are difficult where we may be tempted. But the, the, the request here is help us to say no to temptation. And that's made very clear from the second part of this request. So do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from, and some translations, older translations say evil, but the grammar here is, is pretty clear that he's not just talking about evil generically. He's talking about the evil one. So Satan and his influence on the earth. Evil is obviously a result of Satan and his influence on the earth. So he says here, don't bring us into temptation, but relatedly help us to be delivered from the power and influence of Satan. Help us to say no to temptation. Help me not to sin in the moment. Right? When I have the opportunity to, to say something or to do something or to harbor an attitude that's wrong and sinful, Lord, help me to say no. Because our, our, 
Because yes, we have physical and financial needs, but that's not all we need. And yes, we need forgiveness from our sins, but that's not all we need. We need help to grow as Christians. This is the sanctification side of the Lord's Prayer. Now, some, uh, some specific manuscripts and older English translations include uh, an ending here for the Lord's Prayer. In fact, there are multiple endings in different manuscripts that are added for the Lord's Prayer. Um, but I think the CSB is right in not including any ending here. It's, it's, we know that this is probably the way it came originally, and then others kind of added those after the fact. Those uh, additional endings are based on First Chronicles 29. They're not wrong to pray. So if you're reciting the Lord's Prayer or you read it and it's written out that way, that's fine. It's not like it's, it's wrong. It's just probably not original to Matthew, okay? Now let's just step back for a minute. Two parts here. Kingdom citizens pray kingdom-minded prayers. Well, how do we do this? Well, let's just understand that this is meant to be a model for praying, but also a model for priorities in how we pray. So while it's fine to use this as a verbatim prayer and to quote it, that's not, I think, the primary intended use. Jesus wants us to see this as a template for praying. We come to God who is our Father, and first we come to Him and we pray with a kingdom focus. So take that as a general category and run with it. Pray kingdom-minded prayers, right? In that section, may your name be revered as holy, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. Our kingdom takes a back seat. Are you with me? So when we're praying to the Lord here, our kingdom has to take a back seat. It's God who is the king. It's his kingdom that matters most. Again, it's not just a model prayer. It's a model for priorities, So he says, okay, we we pray in this way, and we'll put your kingdom first. This requires humility. It also means that we intentionally understand that the things that we want, right, that grocery list of, of concerns that we have, those are relegated to a secondary level of importance, right? It's his kingdom first. And then in the second section, we pray for our needs. And as we pray for our needs, we use these categories that Jesus has given us, and we run with it. We do pray for our physical needs. So you should feel that you can go to your father, and you can pray to your father about the ways that you're physically hurting or you're financially hurting, right? And so you can be specific about that in your prayers. But we don't stop with just physical and financial needs. So often, those two categories dominate our prayer life. And yet, in here, in the disciples' prayer, that's just one part, right? It's one out of six requests, right? It's, just, it's, a, it's a different level of prominence, I think, that Jesus tells us to pray with. He's not saying, don't bring your requests to me, but he's saying, listen, those are one part of a, of a bigger agenda item that we have. So we bring to the Lord our physical and financial needs, but then we also bring to the Lord our need for forgiveness, and we confess our sins before the Lord. I just want to encourage you, as a, as a faithful follower of Jesus, confession of sin has to be a part of your prayer life, because God knows you struggle, and you know you struggle. So you got to go to him in prayer about your sin. So you ask for forgiveness, and you ask for help, again, with that reflection of his forgiving attitude towards others. But then thirdly, we also pray for sanctification. We pray for growth and stiff-arming Satan and saying no to the evil one. We pray for help in in dealing with the the areas that we're struggling and we need to grow spiritually. We're, We're aware of the fact that we need to grow spiritually. Now, if you took those categories, those kind of general categories, and you prayed in that way, your prayers would be robustly biblical and theologically accurate. I mean, it's what Calvin said earlier, that you'd be basically almost praying in Jesus' words, but not quite exactly. But what a blessing that would be. 
In this case, when we pray that way, we're not treating God as our genie, right? Oh, God, here's what I want this week. No, but we're praying in a sense of worshipful dependence on him. And when we pray like this, it's not just that our prayers change, but it's that our attitude changes. Our assessment of our needs changes. Guess what? We change. There have been so many times in my life where I've had a particular issue dominating my thought, something keeping you up at night or whatever, and I've, I've gone to pray about it, and then as I've prayed about it, I've realized how ridiculous my attitude has been about it. That the Lord has used prayer as a means of sanctification, where it's like, I can't pray for that. This isn't honoring to God. I need to, you know, and there's an adjustment that happens, and the adjustment doesn't happen with the Almighty. The adjustment happens with me. When we're praying, following Jesus' model for prayer, that will happen to us. We will grow as a result. In fact, it kind of brings up the issue that maybe this isn't just about praying. I think that's actually exactly what's going on because watch verse 14 and 15. After Jesus gives us this model for prayer, then he turns a corner and he circles back to one particular issue in the prayer. In verse 14, he says, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. I thought we were talking about prayer here, Jesus. What's going on? Well, as Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he's not just teaching his disciples how to pray. He's teaching them how to live. Praying like this is not just about praying like this. And so Jesus, as he hits that forgiveness issue, right? As he hits that forgiveness issue, he says, I want to circle back to that for a minute. So let's talk about that. Because the fact is, if you forgive others, then you're, you're forgiven. <clears throat> a gracious, forgiving attitude is a mark of Christianity. But if you don't forgive others, that is a huge red flag that very likely you are not a Christian. Now let's be really clear here. Jesus is not saying that your salvation, your forgiveness, is caused by your forgiveness of others. He's not saying that. He's saying when you're forgiven, you forgive others. That your gracious attitude is a reflection of the character of God. And that's why he said, pray like that. And they said, you know what, let's just circle back to that one point because I've got a feeling people in New Jersey will struggle with forgiveness. So we're just going to circle back here to, I would have used that in any state, okay? It doesn't matter what state you live in, you struggle with forgiveness, right? We all struggle with it. And so Jesus says, listen, here's the deal. If, if you forgive others, that's a reflection of the fact that you have been forgiven. But the, the Apostle Paul makes the exact same argument in Ephesians 4.32. We forgive because God has forgiven us in Christ. That's why we forgive. And so Jesus says, that's a thing. When you forgive others because you've been forgiven. But if you don't forgive others, then you need to ask the question, am I even forgiven? Here he's looking to the future. On that day of judgment, will I be declared clear and righteous? He says, ah, not so much. I don't think so. Because if you're not reflecting the grace of God in the way you treat others, then it's very possible that you've never received that grace in the first place. Now, why does Jesus hit this in, this in this area of prayer? Why does he circle back to it? He circles back to it because kingdom citizens pray for God's kingdom because we live for God's kingdom. The praying and the living go together. We can't separate them out. 
This is why, by the way, it is a problem if the only way we pray is right, uh, uh, rote repetition of prayers. Right? If all we're praying is prayers that we've memorized, there's a good chance that our praying and our living don't match. They don't line up. There, it, there's nothing wrong with using a memorized prayer. But if that's the only way you pray, that could be a problem. Because here's the reality. Jesus says this isn't just about praying. If you're going to pray in this way, you're going to live in this way. And it's all really about discipleship. One more observation here, and then we'll talk about applying it. But here's the reality. If you just step back and look at the Sermon on the Mount as it's recorded in Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, if you tried to find the bullseye center uh, just in, in text of the Sermon on the Mount, guess what it is? The Lord's Prayer. Right in the middle. And maybe Matthew set it up that way in the way he presents it, just so we're really clear that this model for prayer isn't just about prayer. It's about being a disciple of Jesus. In that sense, we could go beyond just talking about how to pray and we can talk about how to live. Brothers and sisters, guess what? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you live a kingdom-minded lifestyle. Let your name be revered as holy in my life. Let your kingdom come in my life. May your will be done in my life. All right, that's the request. And when we, when we follow Jesus, we do bring our needs to him, physical, financial, spiritual, and sanctification-wise. We bring all those needs to him with a recognition that we are desperate for his help to make advancements in any area of our life. And if we're not forgiving others, there's a problem. You could say it this way. We, people who pray like disciples live like disciples. People who pray like disciples live like disciples. So let's ask the question. Okay. Talking about my prayer life. All right. How does this actually work out? Well, again, kingdom citizens pray for God's kingdom because we live for God's kingdom. So am I praying and living with God's kingdom as the center of my priorities? Here, you may just need to acknowledge that you've put your kingdom at the center of your thinking. So this is like in decision-making when we ask, okay, Lord, what, are, what school are you calling me to go to? Lord, what job are you calling me to take? Lord, which house are you calling us to, to buy, right? Which person are you calling me to date? It's not what do I want. It's, Lord, what have you called me to? Lord, may I revere your name in my place of education. Lord, may I revere your name as holy in my workplace, in my neighborhood. Lord, may I revere your name as holy in my dating and marriage relationships and my family relationships, Right? So here we're actually asking the question, am I kingdom-centered in my praying and in my living? And then we also ask, am I actually bringing my real needs to the Lord in prayer? So it's very possible that all you ever pray about are your needs, right? So we, do, we just want to tuck that into our greater right, system of prayer. But if all you're ever doing is praying about your needs, it may be that that's all you're living for, is what you want. And so there's an adjustment there that needs to be made. And so you confess your sin to the Lord, who, guess what, forgives us our debts. And because he's forgiven us our debts, we turn around with others who wrong us, and we forgive them. It's, it's a transformation, not just in how we pray, but in how we live. And as we pray for needs of sanctification, Lord, protect us from the influence of Satan, we ask the question, am I actually resisting Satan in my daily life? We looked at it in James 4 this morning in uh, the adult Bible class, but there's this calling in James 4 to submit to God and to resist the devil. And I just use the, like the picture of a running back just stiff-arming someone trying to tackle him. You know, it's like, no, 
No, I am not going to be influenced by you today. I know that's how the world is thinking, but that's not how I think. All that is related to being kingdom-minded. And so we recognize that on a daily basis, I'm going to struggle with temptation, and I need God's help to navigate my world. So think specifically to your daily struggle. Again, if you're at work or at school or at home, whatever your context is, just ask, how am I going to be tempted to, to think in a worldly way, in a satanic way, rather than in a godly way? And don't just pray for God's help, but then actually seek to live out that, that prayer. Say, Lord, deliver me from the evil one. I, I don't want to be influenced by the evil one. I want to live in a distinctly holy way that brings you glory. In all of this, our praying and living should reflect the gospel. The whole central focus that Jesus gives to forgiveness here, it just reminds us that that's what the gospel of Matthew is all about. It's ultimately about the forgiveness of sins and the building of God's kingdom. And how does that happen? Brothers and sisters, it doesn't happen because we pray right. Can we just all breathe a sigh of relief? (laughs) Our eternal destiny doesn't depend on us praying perfectly. It doesn't depend on us living perfectly. It depends on the work of Jesus, who later in Matthew will do what? He will go to the cross for us. He will die for our sins and he will rise from the dead. And even as we receive instruction here on how to pray and why to pray, when to pray, all of that, right? And as we think about kingdom priorities, we don't take that as a burden for ourselves and say, I got to do that to earn God's favor. And if you're here and you're not familiar with the gospel, I just want to encourage you that the, the message of the Bible is not get yourself straight and then God will forgive you. The message of the Bible is you're beyond help, but Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And by faith in him, you can be forgiven and transformed forever. That's the message of the Bible. And when we put our faith in Jesus, well, now what? Well, now we're kingdom citizens, right? And we live and behave in certain ways. And so we don't take on this command of Jesus and instruction of Jesus as a burden, right? Oh, it's like a, you know, a a downer that we're going to have to pray in this way. No, we take it as instruction and as actually grace giving to us. That we receive God's favor when we listen to his instruction. Kingdom citizens pray for God's kingdom because we live for God's kingdom, Again, I, I, I was encouraged so much with Calvin's comments on this. 500 years old, they're still getting it done. This is what he said. He said, Here nothing is left out that ought to be thought of in the praises of God. Nothing that ought to come into men's minds for his own welfare. Jesus, uh, or John Calvin says, If you use Jesus' model for prayer here, you won't leave anything out. You get everything included that needs to be included, Right? And you get everything for your benefit that you need. So basically, he's just arguing, it's a pretty good prayer. Like, yeah, it's a pretty good one. You should use it. Uh, I would encourage you to use the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, as a model for praying. I would also encourage you that this is not the only prayer in the Bible. There are other prayers in Scripture. And as we see those prayers as as inspired by the Spirit, they instruct us on how to pray. Now, guess what? They're very consistent with the Lord's Prayer, of course. Some of them are longer prayers of confession. Like in the book of Daniel, we read a really long prayer of confession, right? So we learn a little bit more about how to pray, about forgive, forgive us our debts, right? We learn from Daniel. Or some of them are more focused on sanctification as we read in, in Ephesians, for example. There are two glorious prayers focused on sanctification in the book of Ephesians. So we learn more about how to pray about our own sanctification. And as we let Scripture teach us, though, what we'll see is that these prayers don't just teach us how to pray. They teach us how to live. In God's kingdom, yes, we pray for, we pray for God's kingdom as his citizens. Why? Well, because we're living for that kingdom. 
And by his grace, we can grow in both praying for and living for his kingdom. So let's do that now. Let's just pray and ask God to help us pray and live for his kingdom. Lord, again, we pause this morning and we recognize that you are our heavenly father, sovereign over every detail of this universe and the one who cares intimately for our needs. We praise you for that truth, Lord. And we do ask that your name would be revered as holy in our lives. We ask that your kingdom would come, that you would advance the cause of your kingdom, that churches would grow for your glory, that sinners would repent and believe the gospel. Lord, we ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be submissive to you as you lead us and guide us and that we would do your will. And Lord, we think about our needs. We ask that you would meet our needs We know there are so many that are physically hurting, especially this week in our church family, so we lift them up to you. Lord, we think about those who are dealing with long-term physical illnesses, life-threatening illnesses, Lord, and we pray for your mercy on them. Lord, we think about the financial needs that so many have, Lord, trying to make ends meet and needing with bills that need to be paid, Lord, and so we ask that you would provide for our needs, for your glory. Lord, we continue to ask that you would forgive us for our debts, our sins. And we confess the many ways that we have failed you, perhaps even in the way that we've been praying, Lord. And we ask that you would forgive us of that. And we thank you that we can be confident. Uh, we can be confident of forgiveness because of Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to reflect your grace as we deal with others, that we would forgive those who sin against us, that we would be gracious to them. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to grow spiritually. Help us to deal with temptation in a way that brings you honor and glory. Help us to say no to sin. And we pray, Lord, for specific areas where we may be struggling this week in giving into temptation. And we pray that you would help us to be transformed. Lord, we pray that you would help us not simply to be better at praying, but Lord, that you would help us to be better kingdom citizens, to pray for your kingdom and to live for it. And we know we can't do this without the help of your spirit. And so we ask for that now in Jesus' name, amen.